been teaching a series on the subject of worry. We're going to continue this morning with part 3A. Last week was part three. <laughs> and some of you that were here know why I'm calling this morning part 3A. Life is a journey to be embraced. It is not a series of events by which we measure success or self-worth. And Jesus is not only with us on our journey, He is our journey. In Luke's Gospel, chapter 8, verse 18, Jesus said this, then pay attention to how you listen. For those who have more will be given to those who have not. Even what they have will be taken away, he said. I've always struggled with that scripture. Why would you take away what somebody even starts with less? And you have to understand that in the context of that passage, Jesus is saying this. If you apply yourself to having ears to hear, your ears to hear are going to increase. You're going to understand even more. If you're dispassionate about hearing and you kind of approach God's word with a uh, oh hum, not really important, not a focus in my life, then even that, even that is, is going to degenerate into something less than you even have now. I'm taken, Jeff, if we could, back, put that back. I'm taken with, in this verse, thank you very much, then pay attention to how you listen. Is there a wrong way to listen? Is there a better way to listen? Can I improve my listening? I'm going to leave that right there so that you think about it. And I'm going to ask you this morning to listen well. Joshua chapter 1 and verse 8 from the Old Testament. Keep this book of the law always on your lips. Meditate on it day and night. Bring me down just a bit, Jeff. Meditate on it day and night. Now, let's look at this word meditate. If we could, the next slide, Jeff. It means literally to chew the cud or to speak to yourself in low, indistinct sounds as from afar off. You know what that is, right? Tom, do you remember the last time that uh, the car tire went flat or something around the house, maybe the garden hose, you got it out, and all of a sudden you turn it on and it's spraying water from all over. Oh, that, that, that's a stupid curtain. Oh, I wish I would. Have. Now I'm going to have to go to Lowe's and I'm going to have to buy an end. <laughs> Jeff, if we could, please don't move too quick. Go back. To speak to yourself in low, indistinct sounds as from afar off. It's what you do when you kick the tire alongside the road when your car quit. It's what you do when the garden hose springs a leak. It's what you do when somebody cuts you off on the road. As you're driving, okay. 
I wish they'd, I'm, I'm going to. Now, here's the thing. The writer here is saying that's what we're supposed to do with God's word. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night. And then he ties it to our success and our prosperity and says that if we will keep God's word in our mouth and meditate on it and speak it to ourselves and listen well to it, it's going to cause us to enter into greater levels of blessing. Worry is meditating on negative thoughts, images, and emotions. In fact, Max Licato said anxiety is a meteor shower of what-ifs. So in the same way that scriptural meditation is to mutter the Word of God, to chew on the cud, worry is the reverse of that. It's the same principle, but you're doing it with negative thoughts and negative imaginations. Camels are a type of animal that chew the cud. Cows are a type of animal that chew the cud. If you're unfamiliar with that process, both of those animals, when they fill their mouth with the straw or whatever they're eating, they begin to chew it. And then they swallow it. And at that point, it simply goes down into the first stomach of several stomachs. And then they do a very interesting thing. They regurgitate it back up into their mouth where they chew on it some more, getting something different from that chew, and then they swallow it again, and it goes down, and it keeps processing through a series of stomachs, but they keep regurgitating, and each time they continue to chew on it, they get a little, different, a little something different out of it. Does that tell you anything about how listening to God works? We should constantly be listening to the Holy Spirit. And no passage of Scripture should ever be dismissed as, oh, I know that. Oh, pastor speaking on that again? I know that. I wish he'd move on. Because every time you chew on the Scripture, even a very familiar passage, you're getting something, the Holy Spirit can illuminate that and take you into a little bit different place, give you a little bit different understanding of it, and that's what makes reading God's Word and speaking it over and over to yourself in low indistinct sounds all through the day, even when you can't be reading the Bible or praying or have your hands folded, you can be meditating God's Word. Now, take that very same thing and apply it to worrying. When you worry, you are doing that same thing with negative thoughts. Constantly chewing the cud with some sort of negative thought. The word anxious means characterized by extreme uneasiness of mind, brooding fear, ardently or earnestly wishing for better. like a vulture picking at a carcass. Do you have any carcasses in your mind? Could we get that water ready? Do you have any carcasses in your mind that maybe the vulture of worry has been picking at? 
Now, uh, I'm going to tread lightly here because I want to be very careful with what is a genuine concern, but let me tell you that I've also done some real homework here. I've gone out to the World Health Organization, I've gone out to the CDC, and I've done a number of studies of my own on what's known, of course, as the coronavirus. And let me tell you something. The fear of getting coronavirus is like a brooding vulture that's picking at the fear of ignorance. I want to, again, be very careful. I'm not dismissing the importance of it, the reality of it, that over 100,000 people worldwide have gotten it, and that it's very serious, and people are dying from it. So we don't dismiss that. It is nothing to play with. But the overwhelming thought process that's coming to us, especially fostered by the media, because fear sells, is that you're going to get it, your case is going to be bad, and there's a good chance you and maybe a friend or a family member could die. That's just, those are, and there's many other fears. Losing your career, not being able to go back to work for months, and just lots of things. Jeff, if we could. In fact, as early as this morning at 6 o'clock, the World Health Organization updated their website this morning at 6 a.m., and some of the information that I'm sharing, I pulled from there. Above all things, the most important steps to protecting yourself is washing your hands. Here's another principle. Hands, keep your hands below your shoulders. That's so hard to do. I'm looking around right now, and somebody that was holding their face just took their hand off their face. Yeah, I know. But again, and by the way, this is not just for coronavirus. This is for cold symptoms and flu and going through the season we're in right now. It's the exact same thing. This is viral. So the principle is keep your hands below your shoulders. Others are saying, don't touch your mouth, don't touch your ears, don't touch your eyes. Ah, I have three things to remember. I just have to remember, don't put your hands above your shoulders. You say, man, that's really simple. You can't remember those three. I know, I know. I'm a simple person. <laughs> Respiratory hygiene, which means <coughs> cough into your, your uh, elbow, right? Or at least get a Kleenex or a cloth or something. Don't just cough. And don't cough on your hand. Don't cover your mouth and cough. That's the worst. Because then you're going to shake hands, you're going to touch food, you're going to hug. It's the worst. Cough into your elbow. Very simple. And again, I'm taking these all directly from the World Health Organization. Wash your hands. Keep your hands be below your shoulders. They say it differently. Respiratory, uh, respiratory hygiene and early detection. If you have the symptoms that are like corona, get checked out. Do it early. Now, here's something interesting. And I don't know, maybe you've already heard these statistics. But here's some real flu statistics, not coronavirus, flu. Did you know that some 30 to 60,000 people every year die of the flu? Now, we're not hearing it on the media, we're not having the uptick in how to self-care, 
all of that. You know, they're not doing special programs and newsreels and traveling all over the country to find out where all of these individual, individuals are that have died. All right, so Jeff, so this is interesting. Who has died? All right, so total, over 100,000 people now have contracted coronavirus. 42,900 currently are infected. Again, this is 6 a.m. this morning. I pulled these statistics. 86% of them have a very mild condition. 14% very serious or critical. Now, look at this. Over 64,000 of those 100,000 cases are closed. And 94% of all of those recovered and were discharged. Have you gotten that information? Is that the feel, the oversight, the, the, the sort of thought patterns that you've been having about this? I bet it isn't. See, that calms my heart. That gives me peace. That helps deal with my anxiety. And that's what dealing with worry is all about. Be careful how you hear, Jesus said. Be careful what and how you are listening to. Interestingly enough, I had coffee with a scientist from one of the largest drug manufacturers in all of the world. I'm, I'm only doing this for one reason. I'm not trying to drop names or lift myself up as important or anything. I just think it's interesting. Now, I am not going to name the company or this individual's name because of the work they do. And I don't want it to lead because, again, of the time that we are in, it is so sensitive that somebody like this would make this statement to me. And so I'm just going to put it out there, but take my word for it. One of the largest chemical and drug manufacturers in all of the world, and this is one of their scientists. They work on things like cancer. This individual said to me at coffee, Jeff, regarding coronavirus and the scare of it, what you have to understand is this. The majority of people that have gotten it are older, and almost all of them that have died from it have either been elderly or have already had issues health-wise, especially respiratory issues. And one article I read from the CDC, the scientist said that overwhelmingly, most of those individuals who already had other diseases had two to three other diseases going on in their body when they got coronavirus, so they were already weakened. So we're talking majorities here. And no reason for you to be scared or to be overwhelmed. I had a handout, we'll skip it. I'll give it to you afterwards if, if you'd like notes. Let's go to Philippians, please, Jeff. Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4. This is taken from the original language that the Bible Jesus would have been reading from was written in, which is Aramaic. 
The writer of Philippians, which is the Apostle Paul, says this, Never worry of anything. I want you just to stop for just a minute and think about something. Never worry about anything. How many things since arriving here this morning for church service have been going through your mind that you're a little anxious about? Maybe it's what you're going to have for lunch. Maybe it's somebody you have to talk to. Maybe it's a surgery you're going to have on Monday. Maybe it's, oh, who knows, all the things that are going on, how we, we worry and how we're anxious, and, and rightly so about so many things in our life. But listen to what the writer here, Paul, says, never worry, and he's going to explain, never worry of anything, but with prayer, with requests, and with thanksgiving, your asking will always be known before God. What a relationship. And the peace of God that's greater than all of your thoughts, your knowledge, will keep your hearts and your knowledge in Jesus the Messiah. Your greatest worries, if kept in Jesus, you can get through them. They don't have to tear you up. They don't have to destroy your life. You will get through that thing if you don't give it the place in your thought life of meditating on it to where it consumes you. I'm not saying it's easy. I'm not saying just be dismissive with these things. I'm talking about the power of Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit to help us not to worry because both Jesus and Paul said, don't do it. And so I have to accept, Lord, how unkind, <laughs> how hard, how just under non-understanding of you to make that kind of comment, don't worry. He said it in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 6. Paul says it here in Philippians 4. How, how, how hard, how unloving, how unkind of you to say that because you don't know what I'm going through right now, Jesus. And so rather than taking God or the Bible and trying to fit it into our circumstance, we have to take our circumstances and lift them and elevate them into God's reality, into heaven's reality, into the kingdom reality of where Jesus is functioning out of and say, all right, Jesus, you said don't worry. Paul said don't worry. Then it's possible. I can overcome this thing with your help, by your grace, Jesus. I can overcome the worst worry and anxiousness. Never worry of anything. Now, I got to thinking about this. Jesus, surely you worried. I started thinking, okay, I started processing through my mind. When did Jesus worry? When, when, do, when do we see him? Surely there's some passages where we see him worrying. I know where he cried. I know where he was upset. I know where he got angry with the group so much that he went into the temple and he threw over their tables where they were selling things and, and he got a whip. Imagine, this is Jesus. Kind, loving, forgiving Jesus. He got a whip and he started whipping them. 
Now, all of those deserve some exegesis. I'm almost sorry I brought them up because, oh my God, Jesus whipped people? Jesus turned over tables and got... But you know what? I can't find a single passage where it says Jesus worried. But I do find this. Jesus speaks to his disciples one day. It's after an evangelistic meeting. And he says, I want to go over to the other side of the lake, Lake Genesaret. Let's go. They get out there. Now, they're not in a great big ship. They're not in Carnival Cruiser, right? <laughs> there's, there's no wine. There's no slides. There's no bands. The eagles aren't doing Hotel California. They're, I mean, there's nothing like that going on on this sh- boat, this ship. They're, they're rowing, and they've got sails. And the wind comes up and it gets boisterous and the waves get so tall and so high they're crashing into the boat and they're beginning to fill it with water. And the disciples are beside themselves. We're going to sink. I mean, it was far worse in terms of a worry than even coronavirus. I mean, this ship is filling with water. We're going down. And guess where Jesus was? Jesus was at the front of the boat, the scripture says, asleep. They had to go wake him up. Master, don't you care? Same thing. Don't you care that I've got this going on in my life? Don't you care about the circumstances I'm struggling with? And Jesus said, Guys, he stood up, he walked over to the edge of the boat, and he said, Wind, be still. Stop. And it just all quieted down. And then he turned to him and he said, Oh, you of little faith. Now, it's not that they always had little faith. It's not that they never had great faith. They did great things in Christ's name. They saw miracles. They performed miracles. But at least in this situation, what got the best of them? Worry and anxiousness because the circumstances were elevated beyond anything they had ever been a part of. Peace be still right now to all of you. Whatever you're going through, whatever you're wrestling with, whatever you've been thinking about that's just a negative and it's kind of got you, I say to you, peace. Peace to your heart. Peace to your thought life. Be still. And they went to the other side. Everything was fine. Jesus was so calm, he lived in such a reassurance and absence of anxiety that one day, a group of his disciples ran to him and they deluged him with urgent requests. You've got to come now. One of your closest friends, his daughter is dying. She's this close to dying. Please, master, come. And the Bible says, He stayed where he was three more days, and she died. 
Then when he got there to the house, I mean, it was, everybody was wailing and crying. The room where her body lay, they were crying and wailing. And somebody ran up to Jesus while he was still approaching the home. And Jesus, she's dead. Why'd you wait? Then Jesus walks up to the house. He tells all of them to get out. <laughs> How unkind. <laughs> How unkind of you, Lord. You're so ununderstanding. Un 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 you so do not understand the circumstances and the reality of people's emotions. Why did he put them out? Because faith that operates in a place of just freedom from anxiety and worry, which kills faith, couldn't operate at its maximum best. He says, step out, guys. And I forget if in the story he allowed one or two of his disciples to remain in the room, but he took the little girl by the hand and said, rise. How many of you know those are the best prayers? Sometimes just one word, rise. Be healed. Be free. Be set free. When stop. She rises from the dead. They walk out together. Now everybody's... Right? What changed? Well, she rose from the dead. No. Jesus dealt with anxiety and worry. He refused to walk in it. Went in, took authority based on the true realm of what you can't see and said, Get up. Rise. I submit to you that the things that you are struggling with that have you anxious and worried in life are subject to change. And that when we bring heaven to bear against them, you can see some real things change and happen. Dear ones, we are on a journey not a destination. How we perceive this journey is far more important than how we personally or what we personally do on this journey. Jesus is not only our journey, excuse me, Jesus is not only with us on our journey, Jesus is our journey. He knows everything you're going through or will go through because he's already gone through it. He did it. I'll go as far to say as Jesus repented for you. Jesus prayed for you. A true understanding of the incarnation of Christ becoming human is that Jesus, when he hung on that cross and uttered these words, you remember them, it is say it out loud it is again it is what did he mean he's walked your walk 
He's prayed the prayers you need to pray. When you can't think of what to pray or how to pray and you're going through anxiety, stop, rest, and realize that Jesus has already been there. He's already prayed it. He's already fought the battle. He's walked this for you. He is your journey. He's not just with you on it. He is it. And the goal of our journey isn't to reach a series of destinations successfully. Rather, it's to experience transformation. Let me show you something. Jeff, if you'd play that little video. How to read a map. Reading a map is an important skill that may be lost in the Internet and GPS era, but it's a skill that everyone should have. You will need a map, a compass, and a ruler. Step 1. Find the compass rose on the map to determine the directions on the map. The compass rose resembles a flower and will usually have the letter N at the top point, representing north. Step 2. Align the direction you're facing with the direction on the map by using your compass. Step 3. Find a large landmark or land formation to orient yourself. If you see a mountain range on your map and in front of you, find where you are on the map roughly based on your relation to the mountain range. Oh, I found that so powerful. Because the thing is this, even when I Google directions to come to your house, you know what it asks me first in the field above your address? Mine. You've got to know your location first before I can get over there. Before I can get over there, I have to know where I'm at right now and why. So the rows on a map orient you around north. I love this illustration. Why? You must always reorient yourself to your true north, which is your identity in Christ. Whatever you're going through, whatever's bombarding your life, whatever is causing you anxiety, go back to your rose. Go back to your true north, which is who you are in Jesus, not the sickness you're struggling with. It's who I am in Jesus, not the troubled relationship I'm dealing with. It's who is Jesus and the journey He's already traveled for me, not the uh, mound of unpaid bills that I see in front of me. Are you getting it? Jesus is my rose. Jesus is my true north. Everything in life is faced first by understanding where my rose is. And I go from there then to get to where I want to go. When my journey in life is tied to events, when my self-worth is dependent on maintaining a particular culture of feeling and accomplishment, then I become the victim of disillusionment, depression, and distress. And even our new birth comes into question because it's always been associated with an event, something I have to initiate and maintain. And I'm here to tell you this morning that the new birth, that beautiful spiritual new birth in Christ, has nothing to do with you initiating it or you maintaining it. The only way to experience spiritual rebirth is to uncover our origin. And so worry and anxiousness result from being out of agreement with our divine origin. Here's what Paul said regarding our origin. Ephesians chapter 2. He made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. 
and God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. You know what the new birth is? It's not a prayer of repentance. It's not an accepting Jesus into your heart. It's not a certain standard of moral behavior and attending church. The new birth is something that God did in Jesus when Jesus hung on that cross, then went into the grave and rose again. Your new birth is in Jesus. And God gave it to you in Christ while I was still a sinner, while you were still a sinner. God chose you and put you in Christ, the Bible says, and then raised you up to sit together with Christ in heavenly places. So that do-it-yourself religion, repent, pray a particular prayer for forgiveness, accept Jesus into your heart, begin attending church, read your Bible, live a, a, a life of moral excellence, only engenders self-doubt, wandering, backsliding, repenting over and over. Many sincere Christians have gotten born again, again, and again, and again. They've gone up to the altar to ask God to save them again, and again, and none of that is necessary. All of it stems from anxiety and worry because we don't understand that the new birth is not your doing. The new birth is not my doing. The new birth isn't something I initiated. He didn't ask my opinion. God chose us in Christ, put us in Christ. He is our journey. He's not just with us on the journey. And so even the new birth is worry-free. Your Christian walk should be worry-free because Jesus is your journey. He prays your prayers. He fights your battles. He's already walked the journey, and you're in him, and he's in you, and so I have nothing to worry. You know what I'm doing is I'm asking you to step back, take the 40,000-foot view of whatever's going on in your life, and just ask yourself this, this one question. I know this is really going to the edge, but follow my thought pattern here. Step back, 40,000 feet if you would. I'm just saying, you know, get up there in the clouds where you can look down, sort of like those space shots where you look back down on the earth. Very interesting. And look at your life and all of the situations going on. Now ask yourself something. What's the worst that could happen? Paul said nothing can separate you from Christ. And then he gave a whole list of things that we struggle with and worry about and are anxious about. Nothing can separate you from Christ. Now, what's the worst that could happen? I'll just use myself. What if I were to get the coronavirus? What if I died from it? I'd go immediately to be with Jesus. I'd be looking down now on y'all, praying for y'all, Believing that you'll continue a life that's worry-free, anxious-free, and that you'll live your best life on the earth. But knowing this, your eternity was decided when Jesus hung on that cross, went into that grave, and rose again. Not on your moral behavior. Not on all the things we worry about that we need to change. I'm not believing to get a virus. I'm not believing to die. At my age, I'm halfway there. I've got that many more years left. I'm not telling you how old, but you all know. He not only travels with us, he traveled it for us. 
Now watch this. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. By His great mercy, He gave us new birth into a living hope. How? Through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Here's the American Standard Version. According to His great mercy, He begat us again. The mirror version. He reconnected us to our original Genesis. The Aramaic translation. He, with His much mercy, begot us from the origin by the raising up of Jesus, the Messiah, to bring the news of life. This is why Jesus said, don't worry. This is why Paul wrote, take no thought, be anxious for nothing, because my life is in Christ. It may not be perfect right now on this earth. I may be going through temptations and trials, but here's what James said, another just unkind, uncaring, seemingly dismissive statement by the great apostle James when it comes to your temptations, your trials, your tests. Count it all joy, beloved brethren, when you fall into various trials and temptations. That's how James approached it. I mean, sometimes the Bible just grabs me by the shirt collar and shakes me and says, wake up to the new reality of who you are in Jesus Christ. Live from the, the orientation. Live from your true north. Live from the true new birth that God placed you in, in Jesus, when he saved you. My pastor, you're getting a little excited here. Not sure. <laughs> Amen. Amen. How are we doing on time? It's about time to quit, isn't it? Okay. Yeah, thanks. We've got to get my lectern back. My lectern has a little water deal on it. And yeah, we'll put a stool there. I was out for a walk after receiving some very difficult news, difficult news that would affect my finances, my friendships, my sense of success, and the proverbial what will people think. I was crying. Anxiousness, worry began to flood my thoughts. And God said something to me. Listen. He spoke to me something that absolutely ended the grip of worry and anxiousness. And I've not worried or been anxious, certainly about this thing, or really in any way since, in the way that I and you are accustomed to worrying and being anxious. He said, it's not your journey, Jeff. It's mine. I journeyed it for you. I walked, walked it for you. And then he sort of reversed that a little bit, and he said, and these are all people I know, people I've compared my life to, people I look to that are heroes or successful or, you know, things are going better or whatever, okay? Here, watch this. Jeff, it's not Ted's. It's not John's. It's not Doug's or anybody else's. This is the journey that I gave to you. This is the journey where you will find peace. You'll find my hope, my purpose, my transformation. And, and my reason for you in this life. 
Jeff, this is your journey. I gave it to you, not to somebody else. It's not better, it's yours. It's not worse, it's yours. Don't wish for somebody else's. I gave you this one. It's not less, it's yours. It's not greater or less to be desired, it's yours. Don't wish for somebody else's because that's theirs, not yours. You have your own. Don't miss what you've not been given. It's yours. Now, I don't know what that does for you. I just share it as a personal kind of thing. But I'll tell you what, something that day on that walk went off on the inside of me where I stopped comparing, I stopped the negative thoughts, I stopped worrying about the future, and I said, you know what, Lord, we talked about this this week, didn't we? This past week. You've got me right where you want me. You know me perfectly. You already walked this thing out for me perfectly. So I submit to that. And then he said this, and I have read this in my Bible a thousand times, and it never meant this. I never connected the dots. Watch this. Jeff, I will never leave you or forsake you. You heard that verse before? Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5. And then he said, Jeff, there's a difference between I'll never leave you and I'll never forsake you. Oh, never thought about it. I just thought he was doubling up on I won't leave you. I'll never leave you means I'm going to abide. I'll never forsake you means I'm going to uh, provide. And it's that that was the lie, if you'll think about it, back in the garden when Satan came and tempted Eve. You're not enough. You don't have enough. The journey you're on right now needs to be corrected. God knows that if you eat this, you'll become like God and you're going to have a stunning life. Isn't that still the promise of society and all that allures us today? Or somebody else's life you're comparing yourself to that you see that's more successful. And Jesus says, stop it. Stop it. Stop it. Don't worry. Don't be anxious. I will never leave you. And according, according to Adam Clark, a theologian, he says this verse is extraordinarily empathetic in that this short sentence contains five negatives, making a literal translation of it almost impossible. However, this would be the result. No, I will never leave you. No, neither will I not utterly forsake you. If we had to write it into English, it would say this. I will never, never Never, never, never leave you. Let those words resonate. How are you hearing today? How are you hearing today? So I give you three challenges as we leave this morning. Number one, be patient. Guard against being emotionally drawn into insignificant things. Number two, Take heart. Accept suffering from the standpoint of falling upward. A beautiful book written by, I forgot his name, Richard Rohr. Richard Rohr, a Catholic and, and somewhat of a, like a, a monk, not monastery, uh, familiar with the monastery and that kind of life. He doesn't live completely as a monk, but he's written a beautiful book called Falling Upward, which is 
refuse the do-it-yourself response to your anxieties and the I have to take up this fight and I have to do more, produce more, be more. Stop it. Allow even suffering to run its course. I'm not talking about disease. And he wasn't either. Number three, and finally, become impassioned. Remove the clothing of apathy and mediocrity. Do the things that need to be done. Great people come to serve, not to be served. And in the twelfth and final step of the twelve-step program known as Alcoholics Anonymous, number twelve is this. Until and unless you give your life away to others, you do not seem to have it yourself at any deep level.